From George Washington to the landing on the moon, the history of the historian's podcast in 2019. I'm Bob Cudmore. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to present excerpts from 12 of the 51 episodes that debuted on Historian's Podcast in 2019. In January 2019, we heard from Norm Bolin of the Fort Plain Museum about his book, George Washington and the Mohawk Frontier. Norm Bolin discusses the importance of New York's Mohawk Valley in the American Revolution and describes a trip that General Washington made to the valley in 1783. Washington made quite an impression, though, coming through in 1783. Oh, oh, absolutely. You know, they they knew, you know, when he was leaving on that trip, uh, couriers had gone ahead and they would uh, tell everybody uh, that the commander-in-chief was on his way. And you can see in the orders, the daily orderly notes for uh, Fort Rensselaer, you could see them getting ready for the commander-in-chief's arrival, although they don't mention him by name because uh, that would have been all secret. But uh, but they, they appoint a new fife major and give him orders to start rehearsing uh, every day for, uh, so that uh, they have a, a fife and drum corps that can play and, and greet the commander-in-chief. You know, you see orders that all drinking has to stop for <laughs> 10 days. <Okay. laughs> so those kinds of things. Uh, so they, they're preparing for him. Yeah. And then, of course, when he arrives in the area, there's a lot written in local history books talking about where he stayed across the river and coming up to the fort uh, and then touring the area the next day I, from as near as I can tell in local information mm-hmm. and actually tracking the mileage. It looks like he went up into Stone Arabia and toured the Stone Arabia battlefield and, mm-hmm. then, and then continued on up the mm-hmm. valley to Fort Herkimer and out to Fort Stanwix over the next couple of days mm-hmm. before returning to Fort Plain again. That's Norm Bolin talking about his book, George Washington and the Mohawk Frontier. In February, we featured an interview with Nick Bunker about his book, Young Benjamin Franklin, The Birth of Ingenuity. Bunker, who was British, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in America with an earlier book called Empire on the Edge, giving a British-themed account of the American Revolution. Ben Franklin has been the subject of numerous books. I asked Nick Bunker why he decided to pursue a book on Benjamin Franklin. Well, it came out really of, of, of the book that you mentioned, my previous book, Empire on the Edge, which was all about the revolutionary crisis of the, of the 1770s. And Franklin came into that book in quite a big way. And while I was working my way through Franklin's correspondence, his papers from a period around about the time of the Boston Tea Party, I became fascinated by Franklin. I'd always been interested in Franklin, but I really became bitten by the Franklin book. And I wanted to find a way of writing about Franklin where I could actually add value and talk about things that hadn't really been covered before. And the the part of his life that has tended to be a bit neglected by historians is, is his early life, up to the age 40. Partly because, although we have his autobiography, there are relatively few, in fact, very few letters and papers of his survived from that era. So people have, have tended to leave it on one side. I felt that I could, could add some value, not least because Franklin and his family were really Anglo-American at that stage. I mean, they, they, they traveled back and forth across the Atlantic, and his father had been quite a recent immigrant, only been there for 20 years when, in Boston when Franklin was born. So I felt I could actually shed new light on that period. That's Nick Bunker, author of Young Benjamin Franklin. 
In March 2019, Historian's Podcast featured an interview with Patricia Walsh Chadwick, author of Little Sister, a memoir about her childhood living in an excommunicated Roman Catholic community in Massachusetts. Catherine Clark and Father Leonard Feeney formed The Slaves of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, which Walsh Chadwick's family joined. That name sounds very serious. Uh, it was serious, and in fact, it was uh, created in response to the fact that Father Feeney and other members of the St. Benedict Center, which included my parents, were increasingly under pressure to use their influence not to be a force for separation between the Catholic Church and other religions, but rather to accept the fact that ecumenism was part of what Catholics should engage in. But in fact, they chose not to participate in that, but rather to express their strong conviction that the dogma of the Catholic Church, which said you had to be Catholic to be saved, i.e. to get to heaven, was something that they were not willing to compromise in any way. And when the Boston Church authorities and the Jesuits pressured them not to speak about no salvation as a dogma of the Catholic Church, they realized that they were pitting themselves against the Catholic hierarchies, and that was when they formed this religious community, which my parents joined uh, in January mm. of 1949. Patricia Walsh Chadwick is author of Little Sister, a memoir about her childhood in a strict religious community. One of our April episodes on Historian's Podcast featured Richard Radijak, then 87, looking back on his life as a child in Amsterdam, a soldier in the Korean War, and as a priest. Radijak left the priesthood to marry the woman he loved, then worked in state government as he gradually lost his eyesight. Richard Radijak grew up on Amsterdam's Reed Hill, where I grew up. Radijak says the Cudmore family was on his paper route. Right, I can honestly say that you are on my paper route because you... You and your family, Bob, lived on Pulaski Street in Amsterdam, and I peddled the Amsterdam Evening Recorder to every home on Pulaski Street. Definitely, uh, the Cudmores were on my paper route. I hope we tipped you. <laughs> Can I tell uh, a side story here? Sure. At the time, the uh, Amsterdam Evening Recorder was six cents a copy, and so it ran six days a week. And when I collected on Saturday morning, uh, that was 24 cents, and people would give you a quarter and then put out their hand for the penny. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the math is a little off, but that's a great story from Richard Radijak, who spent some years on the board of RISE, WMHT's radio service for the blind, which carries the Historian's Podcast. In late May, we heard about Fort Ticonderoga, a major upstate New York historic site and tourist attraction on Lake Champlain. Beth Hill, president and CEO of Fort Ticonderoga, discussed the year 1758, in which a large British army was unable to capture the fort, then called Fort Carrion, 
which was defended by a much smaller French garrison. The French created or uh, initiated Fort Carrion in the year 1755. Construction was well underway in 1756. It was a launching point um, to uh, attack the British uh, northern part of their empire here uh, in the, the North American colonies. Uh, and, um, and really, if you think about this part of uh, from Lake Champlain down to the southern end of Lake George being a no-man's land mm-hmm. where this constant skirmish was happening. Um, so this year's focus for 1758 really gives us this opportunity to highlight this pivotal year in North America's history. That's Beth Hill from New York's Fort Ticonderoga. We did a podcast in June with Albany, New York history tour guide Maeve McEnany, who comes from an historic Albany family. I am, yeah. It's, uh, it's in my blood. You're a seventh-generation Albany native? That's right. And, and lifelong resident. And the, the ones that I know from your family are, um, well, involved in politics. Like your father was a state assemblyman, correct, John yeah. uh, McEnany? But he also has this lively interest in history. He's written a history book of Albany. Yeah, my uh, he wrote the history book of Albany, Capital City on the Hudson, uh, and uh, he really, you know, he has a wonderful career as a uh, as a politician, as a public figure. But he really, at the end of the day, you ask him, and he says that he's an historian. Uh, even that, he breaks down to say he's a storyteller. <laughs> so, as a child, we would explore Albany. Albany was his playground. Uh, my brother, who's a, a playwright, he even says it was his Narnia. You know, we would just, it was a magical city. But of course, as a child, you know, you have this father who is known for history. So what would you think I, as a child, obviously I was like, oh, no, 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 not history. History's <laughs> not for me. I'm not into that, right? That's my dad's thing. Right. And so what he would do, though, as we would walk around is he would say, okay, okay, it's not history, but maybe he'd tell a ghost story. And a ghost story, which really at the essence, and I, I, do, um, I wrote what, what I believe is the first ghost tour of the city of Albany, you know, he finds that kind of crux, you know, that's about people. So he would trick us by telling us about people and personalities, and uh, and meanwhile, little did we know, we were learning about the history sure. of this great city. Uh, so I went to school as an English education major, uh, So and I have my master's in English as well. Uh, but when I graduated, I started giving tours with the Albany Aqueducts to just, you know, make a little money. This is a, you know, stopgap. But then I found I really liked it. It mm. was teaching. It was performing because I have also a theater background. Uh, it was everything I liked. And then I started to uncover the city for my own. Of course, I had the foundation from my father, but to be able to explore and, and discover on my own, and he would fill in the blanks for me. And so he hasn't said, I told you so, <laughs> but <laughs> that, you know, that of course, that we would discover it. But he always said, you know, my kids had to find it for their own. And, and in my case, I definitely did. Maeve McEnany is Education and Heritage Coordinator at the Albany Visitor Center. You're listening to a special edition of the Historian's Podcast. A look back at some of the episodes from 2019. 2019 was a banner year for our annual fund drive. We exceeded the $4,000 goal. Thank you very much. And you can donate to our 2020 fund drive on GoFundMe.com or send a check made out to Bob Cudmore, 
to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York. Thank you very much. In July of 2019 on the Historian's Podcast, we heard two perspectives on the first moon landing by American astronauts in 1969. Rod Pyle of NASA is author of the book, First on the Moon. So this was a program that had started in 1961 when President Kennedy first announced we were going to go to the moon. In eight very short years, we managed to develop this hardware, overcome a couple of setbacks with accidents like the Apollo 1 fire, orbit the moon in 1968 with Apollo 8, and then finally land there with Apollo 11 in 1969, July of that year. Just an incredible achievement. Even from today's perspective, as I look back, it's almost harder for me to believe now that we pulled that off with 1950s, 1960s technology than it was at the time. It's just an incredible landmark. Mm. But you mentioned that uh, President Kennedy and his idea of this moonshot was it was more driven by geopolitics uh, and the, a race or competition with the Soviet Union, was it not? That's absolutely right, uh, and uh, it's, it's good to hear you say that because a lot of people don't really understand it. Um, there's this sense uh, in the intervening years, this developed as, well, Kennedy loves space and he loves science and so forth, and he certainly was interested in those things, but he wasn't that interested in spending almost 5% of the federal budget to get to the moon. What he was concerned about was how the Soviet Union was making us looking like we were standing still. They had been the first to orbit a satellite. They had been first to orbit a human in space. At the time that Kennedy made this announcement in 1961, we had a grand total of 15 minutes of suborbital spaceflight. We hadn't, hadn't even reached orbit. So this was truly a brash and audacious goal, which may be one of the reasons that it worked. That's Ron Pyle of NASA. Kurt Brenneman is Dean of Science at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. Brenneman was 13 when Apollo 11 went to the moon, and watching the TV coverage had a big impact on him. Yes, uh, the landing and all of the missions that led up to the landing uh, made a tremendous impression on me, uh, and I would say shaped my destiny in a way. Um, From that point on, I knew I, I needed to be a scientist because I wanted to work on things larger than what I could do myself alone. And I was always fascinated with technology, but it uh, tended to focus that even more. Uh, I still have a vivid memory of, of watching it on the black and white TV and, and uh, you know, seeing that fuzzy uh, mm-hmm. outline of, of Neil Armstrong stepping off the limb. That's Kurt Brenneman, Dean of Science at RPI. In August on the Historian's Podcast, author Dan Weaver told about his new booklet, The Willoughby Negroes. Sir William Johnson, Sir Peter Warren, and an 18th century free black community in the Mohawk Valley. Where did the Willoughby Negroes settle? Well, they settled on a small uh, patent of land, about 266 acres, directly across from what is now the village of Cranesville, about a mile below the city of Am- where the city of Amsterdam is. Hmm. So it's kind of in the area of where that big stone quarry is located, too, right? Yes. In fact, also the the, the stone quarry is actually on the original patent, and uh, the, also Cranesville Block Company, which is the former, it was a power station, power generating plant for the Adirondack Power and Light Company, mm-hmm. is also on on the former 
Willoughby Patton. Now, such a settlement of free blacks was unusual, I believe. Was it not in colonial America, where many of the settlers, or the European, the white settlers, north and south, owned enslaved blacks? Yes. Uh, I mean, and, and the Mohawk Valley was filled with slaves. There were a lot of slaves. Guy Johnson had 19 slaves. Sir William Johnson had 40-some over his lifetime. Now, and of course, the thing is, when we get into Willoughby Negroes, were they really black? Were they really, really Negroes? That's the question that comes up in my book, in the booklet, and that's the question I attempt to answer. And, uh, and basically what I come to the conclusion is that they were a mixed race, and that the African portion of their ancestry was North African, what was referred to, people who were referred to as Moors in that in that day and age. Um, but there were quite a few free blacks in New York State, yeah, well, the province of New York, colonial New York mm-hmm. at the time as well. How does the Willoughby story relate to Sir Peter Warren, who was a British admiral, and Warren's relative, Sir William Johnson, uh, who became superintendent of Indian Affairs for the British government in New York State? Well, the Willoughby uh, patent uh, butted up against Peter Warren's 14,000-acre patent, a huge patent of land, which is primarily the town of Florida today. And Peter Warren and William Johnson kind of coveted the Willoughby land patent because Warrensburg, unfortunately, did not have any flat land along the river. It was all hill. I mean, there was some plateau land on the top, which which turned out to be decent farmland, but it didn't have any of those any of the river bottom lands that people wanted, mm-hmm. whereas the Willoughby patent did. Dan Weaver's latest project is Albany Apple, an online journal on New York State politics, culture, and history. In September 2019, we caught up with Samantha Hall Saladino, who organized a year's worth of activities called the Year of the Glove in Fulton County. Paul Saladino is Fulton County historian and executive director of the Fulton County Museum and Historical Society. Gloversville and Johnstown were major centers of the American glove trade, but Hall Saladino says the concept for the local year of the glove came from an art teacher in Perth, Scotland. This all started with an email from an art teacher in Perth, Scotland, um, and her message sort of spurred us to realize that we haven't really had a big sort of celebration or commemoration of our heritage and history, and I think as the generations start to get farther and farther away from it, uh, that history is in danger of becoming forgotten or we're missing out on opportunities to speak to the people who were involved in the glove and leather industry in Fulton County. So uh, I think it's going pretty well. We're having a lot of interest from the community, and we've had quite a few events that have been uh, very uh, interesting and educational. I've been learning a lot this year. Yes, and one of the events has to do with that woman, was it, who wrote you from Perth, Scotland. Yes, Allison Ferguson. Uh, there was a Glover's Guild in Perth, Scotland, and one of the stories is that Sir William Johnson, when he settled Johnstown in the um, uh, 18th century, that he was encouraging Glovers from Perth to come to the area and settle 
Um, we don't know necessarily if that's 100% true. There's no real historic documentation that we can find from that era that dates that, but it's one of those things that's been mm-hmm. told over the years. And so she uh, was doing a project with her students to sort of the same thing we're doing here, look into the glove industry in Scotland and create art projects based on that history. And when she discovered this connection online between Perth, Scotland and Fulton County, she reached out to uh, Marion Viglione at the Fulton County Historical Society, and that's sort of where this whole idea was born. So they sent some of their artwork over to us, which is currently on display at the museum. Mm-hmm. And Fulton County does have a, a museum. It's on Kingsborough Avenue, right? A yes. Former, yes. former school. Now, and it's also the the Perth art exhibit or the students in Perth did. And what are they? They're like, like paintings of gloves or what, what, what did they do? They did all kinds of mixed media. Some are paintings, some photographs, some are 3D pieces, which is really interesting. So they had full creative reign of what they wanted to use when they did those pieces. And you're uh, trying to do a similar thing in Fulton County now with young people, right? We did. There was an art show on display at the Fulton Montgomery Regional Chamber of Commerce um, through June. And we had a, a judged art show with prizes and um, the students came out to the awards ceremony, and it was really, really lovely to see our young people getting involved in this. Samantha Hall Saladino is Fulton County historian and executive director of the Fulton County Historical Society and Museum. In October on Historian's Podcast, author and professor Charles Postel discussed his book, Equality, an American Dilemma, 1866 to 1896. The book follows three organizations, The Grange, Women's Christian Temperance Union, and Knights of Labor. Why did you call the book Equality? My sources led me to that word. I had no plan to use that word, but equality was such a big issue at that time uh, that I felt I didn't have any other choice. They were debating, uh, arguing, discussing, promoting what equality meant after the Civil War, and uh so I decided to go with I decided to go with my sources. That's what they're talking about. That's what I'm writing about. The uh, new book, as I mentioned before, delves into the late 19th century, talking about three organizations: the Grange, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and the Knights of Labor. All of them, in one way or another, I mean, they pursued other things or other causes, but they w- were founded, or would you say, or they had uh, a philosophy uh, that, that wanted them to promote equality, equality among the sexes, equality among uh, the races, if you will. Was that what they were trying to do? Yeah, well, I would, I would argue that each of them had their own notions of equality, and that's one of the striking things that this book goes into. Farmers had their idea of what equality meant in terms of economics in the United States. They were very concerned with the rise of monopoly. What did did a railroad monopoly mean in terms of economic equality? They were interested in equality of of the business interest of farming in the national economy. Women's rights movements obviously had different ideas about equality and the place of women in the home, place of women in American politics, the right of political rights of women, economic rights of women. African Americans had their issues, uh, very sharp issues. What did what did emancipation mean if they 
without equality in terms of before the law and in economics and other affairs. Uh, and then, of course, there's the labor movement, which ha- had their own notions of equality. And what did that mean? Equality between capital and labor, as they would talk about it. Mm. So the book is really about how these different forces thought about equality. And it's sometimes they merged and fused and, and, and made quite important strides towards a more humane and equal just society. And sometimes these notions of equality did not, did not do well together mm-hmm. and conflicted. Mm. And the results were disastrous. Charles Posto is author of Equality, an American Dilemma, 1866 to 1896. In November, Schenectady County historian Bill Buell told us about his book on Schenectady's socialist mayor, George Lunn, the 1912 socialist victory in Schenectady. George Lunn was a very good man, Bob. He was born in uh, Iowa. Um, went to uh, Union Theological Seminary in New York City, uh, got a job in Brooklyn as an associate pastor there at a Presbyterian church, and then he headed north to Schenectady in 1904 to become a, uh, become senior pastor at the First Reformed Church of Schenectady. In 1910, he leaves the uh, pulpit, so to speak, and runs for mayor on the socialist ticket in 1911, and lo and behold, he's actually elected. <laughs> about that. And the book is now out, or I've seen uh, pictures of it, uh, of, the, of the cover, and on the cover is a photograph of George Lunn. And you and I have talked about George Lunn several times over the years, but I never realized, I mean, he's a real handsome guy. He was a handsome guy. He was uh, he had a magnetic personality, I guess you could say. Uh, Democrats and Republicans uh, both liked him personally. Uh, he was very he was a very good politician and a very very likable person too. And in so, in addition to being Schenectady mayor, which I think he was for several terms, he also served in Congress and he was lieutenant governor. Yep, he won as a socialist uh, for mayor twice. Then he becomes a Democrat and wins um, the mayoral race uh, two more times. Before that, in between his second and third term as mayor, he's elected U.S. congressman as a Democrat from 1917 to 1918. And then uh, under Al Smith, our first Catholic governor of New York State, he becomes lieutenant governor and he's that for two years in the 1920, I think it was 22 to 24. Bill Buell is Schenectady County historian and worked many years as a reporter for the Daily Gazette. Lee Eckmeyer joined us in December 2019 on a podcast episode. Lee Eckmeyer, the widow of well-known artist and printmaker Frank Eckmeyer, is from the village of Gilbertsville and town of Butternuts, where she's the historian of both of those communities in Otsego County, New York. Gilbertsville, I'm told, has the look and feel of an English country village. Eckmeyer explains why the entire village of Gilbertsville has been named an historic district. For example, there are historic churches, homes, and 
the Gilbertsville Academy. The Gilbertsville Academy was part of the cultural history of this region, which sets it aside from any other place in Otsego County. And, and it was the building that housed the Gilbertsville Academy, which was established in 1815. But the interest in, in promoting education had begun uh, seriously here in 1790. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the And so the Academy had this... Uh, over 100-year history of training students who most of them went on to further education out of this area and uh, made big names from the, for, the, for themselves uh, all over the world. That's Gilbertsville and Town of Butternut's historian Lee Eckmeyer from Otsego County. Thanks to all our guests and financial supporters and listeners in 2019, this has been the Historian's Podcast and I'm Bob Cutmore.